Well, our purpose for this conference is to put forward the glory of Christ's beloved bride, the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. I want to just spend a few moments giving our thoughts flowing in this direction. And if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. We'll just be there for a a few moments. I just want to get our minds going in the right direction here. Very familiar passage to us in the video a moment ago, Dustin referred to this passage, and I'd like to return to that. I want to use this very familiar text to demonstrate just how supremely confident, how assured, how certain you can be that God's redemptive program through the church will, in fact, be wildly successful. Now, we've seen in the past 18 months a frontal assault on the church. We have seen pastors put in prison. We have seen fines being levied against churches for obeying God simply by meeting But maybe the worst assault against the church in these times has been in the area of truth and ideas, of trying to force worldly, godless philosophies into a Christianized mold and to make the church swallow the lies of the world. You're familiar with this text, so I won't really set it up for you much. We just have a moment. But Jesus has asked his disciples in verse 13 of Matthew 16, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give him a variety of answers. And in verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in one mind-blowing statement, Peter captures the greatest core truths necessary to come to saving faith in Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Anointed One, the one prophesied from of old. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the one who has lived forever and ever and ever. That Jesus is God by virtue of his equality as a son and his eternal nature. That all that God is, Jesus is. But the question is, how did Peter know this? And Jesus makes a bombshell declaration here in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Why is this a bombshell? Because Jesus has just asserted that no one can know God, no one can identify Christ, that no one can approach God with knowledge of God unless God reveals it. Just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so Jesus pronounces Peter a blessed man because God, in his kindness, in his grace, has revealed to him the truth about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, a truth that no man will ever figure out because logic or deduction is not a qualifying ability to know God. It must be revealed. But then Jesus makes this famous bold proclamation, a proclamation that his program of building a kingdom of worshipers will in fact succeed. In verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that's an interesting question. What is the rock? Or who is the rock? Is Jesus saying that Peter is the actual founder of the church? Or is Jesus saying that Peter's confession is a theological rock upon which Christ is built? 
And ultimately, we can look to the end of all things and see elsewhere in the New Testament and see how all of redemptive history works out. And as Dustin said in the video, ultimately we arrive at Christ as the only rock. But is there some more color to that? Is there some more understanding that we could look at? Because the fact is, is that the wording that Jesus very carefully uses here, I don't know how else to say this, but it's odd. It's strange. You're likely familiar with the fact that the word Peter means rock, and that when Jesus says Peter and rock, while they're not identical, they're very similar, but there are a couple of oddities about this statement. First of all, rock is a feminine noun, and it doesn't match the masculine Peter, and that that would be very abnormal if this was an exact parallel. Second oddity, if Peter is the rock, it's very peculiar that suddenly Jesus uses an impersonal pronoun this to refer to Peter. Now, why is that unusual? Imagine this. You're out to lunch with a friend and the server comes and gives you the check and you say to the server, I'll pay for this also, pointing to your friend. Your friend's going to go, hey, I'm a person. I'm not a this. And so it's a little odd. But you can't deny that Jesus is clearly making a connection between Peter and the rock. And whatever this rock is will be the means that the church is built, that citizens of God's kingdom are added day by day and year by year and decade by decade and century after century. And while ultimately Christ becomes the rock, as we color in the details of what that means, I would propose that we don't particularly have to make a choice as to the one thing that the rock is either Peter or his confession or some would take it all the way only to be in Christ. I don't think we have to make that choice. I would propose letting it be okay to make the rock somewhat of a package deal. And what's in this package? Well, first, a confession of the truth of Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10, you're very familiar with this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But we could add to this package, second, not only a confession of the truth of Christ, it's a confession of the truth of Christ given by the grace of God. How did Peter know this? God told him, as it were. There was a supernatural knowledge in his heart. This is exactly what Jesus prayed in Matthew 11. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The truth of Christ is revealed only to those whom God chooses. But we could add to this package, not only is the rock a confession of the truth of Christ, not only is it a confession of the truth of Christ given by the grace of God, but it's a confession of the truth of Christ given by the grace of God to an undeserving sinner. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so what does this make Peter? Why is he here at the center of this little discussion? We don't deny his importance. We don't deny his preeminence even in the early days of the church. He is the clear leader. He's the clear spokesman. But in this moment, he fills some mighty shoes by becoming, listen, by becoming the prototype, the example, the model, the epitome of how Christ will build his church. How will Christ build his church? Through a confession of the truth of Christ given by the grace of God to an undeserving sinner, one after another, after another, after another. 
And so by taking someone like Peter, a sinner in need of grace, having God the Father reveal the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, to now be a forever part of the church, the ever-growing people of God being gathered age after age after age into heaven until that day when Christ takes over the world and his church reigns with him. One last little note here. How confident is Christ that he will build his church? He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To be just a tad more precise, the Greek text says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The waiting place of the dead, such as described in Luke 16 and in Revelation 20, when death and Hades are thrown into hell, the lake of fire. Now, this is very important because Hades and death are closely associated in the New Testament. And symbolically, they represent all that's wicked, all that's dark, all that's evil. But this picture is a little bit perplexing. We can all picture a massive ancient gate, right? It's just like the gate in your yard, only a lot bigger and heavier. It's shut tightly to keep an invading army out. But this is an interesting picture. It's a picture of the gates of Hades being used as an offensive weapon. Is this Satan, as it were, taking the gates of Hades and trying to whack the church with them? That's a picture I can't really relate to. It's clearly an offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon. Could I suggest that Jesus is not speaking of gates like those that swing on hinges? But he's speaking of gates as places where wisdom and understanding is given and discerned. Follow me. The gates of many ancient Near Eastern towns and cities were housed in thick walls. And these walls contained rooms right at the gates. And in these rooms, different transactions and discussions took place. At the city gates was where business transactions were legally bound. At the city gates was where decisions by the town elders were made. And we think of the husband of the Proverbs 31 woman. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. In other words, the gates were where wisdom was given and ideas were exchanged and the wisest of the wisest of the wise gathered. If you wanted to glean insight, if you wanted knowledge, if you wanted to know how to think, you went to the gates. And listen, Jesus' listeners here, they'd be very familiar with that use of the term gates. They wouldn't have any reference point whatsoever to the use of gates as some sort of offensive weapon. And so I'd like to propose that what Jesus is saying is not so much that the gates of Hades won't be able to whack the church, but that the so-called worldly wisdom, the philosophies which are all given by Satan, the so-called wisdom of the gates, that none of the ideas, none of the philosophies, none of the mindsets, none of the deceptions, none of the man-made belief systems can ever, ever, ever prevail against the greatest of all truths. That no fabrication, no deceit can ever overwhelm you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There is no lie that can overcome the truth. There is no twisted wisdom that can unravel Christ. There is no wicked logic that can explain away the cross. There's no darkened reasoning that can reverse the regenerate new nature of even one born again Christian. And there is no satanic deception that can cause the church's defeat. This is very important for us today because lies are being thrown against the walls of the church faster than ever before in history. But trying to pit the lies of the world against the truth 
is an utterly hopeless endeavor that will fail. God has said that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, the unstoppable truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And my hope and our prayer for you is that tonight and tomorrow, that your confidence in God's success in his redemptive program through the church will just grow and grow and grow and be strengthened. That's our prayer for you.